Good morning, Door of Hope. Uh, would you stand with me <laughs> in reverence for reading of the Holy Scriptures? This is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Uh, good morning, everybody. You sound beautiful. It was so lovely. Thank you, Luke and Rachel, for, yeah. For, uh, put, I'm sure, for what is pushing many of us out of our comfort zone, that is just such a beautiful thing. Nothing but this community's voices. Um, yeah, that's a gift. Um, well, my name is Cameron. I am lead pastor here and one of the elders here, and we are uh, continuing in what will ultimately be, I think, a seven or eight week series uh, that we're, I don't know if this is either a brilliant title or the dumbest title I've ever come up with, but... <laughs> You be the judge. One anothering. One anothering. Shape of life together in the family of God. Um, we mentioned last week that at this church even, we've been a church three plus years, uh, and we've already given a number of sort of community teachings. Uh, we certainly did a few when we went through the gospel according to Mark. We've done a few topical. We've done a few in terms of vision series. Uh, but it dawned on me that I've never really... For all my talk, personally, about community, I've never really tried to get into the nuts and bolts of like, okay, yeah, all that beautiful, lofty vision stuff is cool, but like how? How do you do it? And it turned out, it turns out that, that the New Testament has a lot to say about that, um, and it's just threaded through the fabric of the whole thing, specifically, not exclusively, but in, in, in a very powerful way in the form of these one another commandments of the New Testament. And so we've mentioned this before, but there are, depending on how you count, about 61 one another or mutuality commands in, across the New Testament that I think are right, can rightfully be understood of how, as how we put flesh on the basic command to love one another. So last week, we talked about this vision Jesus laid out of the church as this new family whose new command, central command, the basic organizing command is to love one another as Jesus has loved us so that the world might know that we are genuinely his disciples. And so then you go, okay, love, yes, love. We love, love, beautiful, but how? And I think we can rightly take these 61 commands as sort of putting flesh on that command. So what does it look like? Well, here's a whole bunch of things. So before we go any further in this series, I actually just want to read this for you. Read these commands side by side. This will just take a couple minutes. And we've done this before, but this is... Every time I do this, I think it's such a powerful reminder to me, and I've heard from a number of you that it's hard to not get emotional when you hear this. So I'm just going to read them. So I'm not going to give you the scripture references, but these starting in uh, the Gospel of Mark, going all the way through Revelation, uh, and some of them, there'll just be like the same command back to back. So if you hear me repeat, repeat the same one like four or five times in a row, that's just because it's commanded again and again and again in short succession. So here we go. Be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. 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 
Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. To live in such harmony with one another. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have equal concern for each other. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Serve one another in love. Don't keep on biting and devouring each other. Not conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever you may have against one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Love each other. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Seek to do good with one another and to everyone. Encourage one another daily. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. Encourage one another. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each should use whatever gift to serve others. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Love one another. 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 That is what we're supposed to be. That is meant to mark the relationships between all the people that make up the church, the family of God. And we're meant to, we're meant to love our neighbors outside the family of God as well. We're meant to uh, love our enemies, for crying out loud, according to Jesus. But we wanna, this series is for thinking about the relationship here in this church and across the churches that make up the family of God. It's a relationship of deep love for one another expressed in these terms. And so for the rest of this series, we're going to take a couple of the most prominent of these commands uh, each week, I think two every week, and, uh, and we're going to dive into them and explore, like hopefully very practically, what, how do we do this? And so today, Kyle read for us a passage from Colossians that has two of these commands right next to one another, the commands to forbear and to forgive. Forbear and forgive. Before we jump in, let's just pray one more time. Lord, it's really easy to talk about love in an abstract way. And when you start putting flesh on it, when you start putting real stories and real pains and real circumstances, Lord, it's, we, then we get just a, a full glance at how hard this is and what a dramatically powerful thing you're calling us to. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts over these next weeks, Lord, to receive this. Um, and to not let it be a crushing burden, but an, excite, an exciting, glorious opportunity, Lord, to grow in what it means to love one another, that the world might know we are genuinely your disciples, that we're not play-acting at Christianity, that we're not play-acting at discipleship, Lord, but that we, we love you and we evidence that love by loving one another. Help us grow this in us, Lord. Move us this direction. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this little, this little passage, um, you know, it's of course part of a larger context in the book of Colossians written by Paul, but we're, we're going to pick up in verse 12, and he, he's going to build to this command, to these commands to love and to, or I'm sorry, to uh, forbear and forgive, but he starts with this in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then the commands come. And the logic here is, is there's two things that precede the command to bear with one another and forgive one another. And that is, first, remember your new identity. So a lot of Colossians about embracing this identity that God has given you. But look at what he says here. He says, remember, you are God's chosen ones. God chose you. God doesn't begrudgingly accept you into his family, but he chose you to be part of it. What naturally flows out of that choosing is that you are holy. You are set apart for his purposes. And then finally, maybe the most powerful of all is that you are beloved by him. You are beloved. He loves you. Like if there's anyone in this room who struggles with, you know, you're a follower of Christ, you struggle, like could God possibly love me because of what I did last night or what I did last week or just the shape of my life right now, how it doesn't look anything like I thought it would be. My failures are so numerous. Like, hear this. You are beloved. You are beloved by the God of the universe. All of these titles, all three of these, are used of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They're used of Jesus in the New Testament, and now they are used by Paul of the church. The idea then is that we, if we are his, if we are his chosen ones, if we are holy, if we are beloved, then we ought to look different. We ought to be changed because of that new identity and status. And he goes on. So what does that look like? If this is the identity, then how do we act? He says, well, we need to walk by his spirit in intimate relationship with him that his fruit might be born in you according with that new identity. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but this is the, the overlap with this list of virtues he gives is so close with the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit. We can rightfully think of this is the kind of stuff the Spirit of God produces in your life, in your heart, as a result of close connection with him. These are fruits of the Spirit. So what are they? What are the ones he mentions here? This isn't all of them, but it's a little, a sub-list. First, compassion. Compassionate hearts. Commentator Doug Moo wrote that compassion, this is so interesting, it translates a phrase that can be rendered, uh, rendered literally, and I think the, the King James might render it this way, uh, as the bowels of mercy. And that might sound kind of gross at first, <laughs> bowels of mercy. But what, it, what it's getting at is it's a sense of deep, the bowels, the innermost part of yourself, a mercy towards the innermost parts of the people that you find, them, find yourself around. Like, this compassion is looking at the deepest places within your brothers and sisters and having mercy for those places. 
a sense of deep sensitivity and concern for the inner depths of people. He says, put that on. What else you put on? He says, kindness, an expression, an expressed sensitivity and care. That's compassion put into action in how you speak with people and how you treat people. Humility, it's a Christ-like attitude towards oneself, laying down our entitlements and committing to lift up and serve the people around us. Meekness, that's similar to kindness and humility. It overlaps a little bit, but a a synonym for meekness is gentleness. Strength expressed through self-control. Once again, sensitivity is a good word here. And then the fifth is patience. It's a capacity to tolerate inconvenience and waiting and suffering and to do that without resentment or anger. So we could, we could spend weeks on each of these, but we're, that's all the time we have for those now. But we just want to say that what, what Paul's building towards is that these virtues, these five things, these fruits of the Spirit of God in our lives, that work in our lives, these are necessary to build the kind of loving bond that Jesus envisioned between members of his church. And these are actually the necessary precondition to be able to obey what he's about to call us into in this next verse. So, if you want to bear with, learn how to bear with or forbear with one another and to forgive one another, we have to be these kinds of people. The precondition is compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. The life of love that Jesus envisions, it does not flow from our natural state. There's nothing natural about these virtues, these fruits. In fact, on our worst days, we just rage against developing these things. It doesn't flow from our natural state. It flows from vital connection to him, submission to him, a supernatural changing from him. And so the first thing we have to say is before we try to bear down and, you know, okay, I'm going to really work on being a more forgiving person, we just have to be connected to our Lord. We have to be intimate with him. We have to just be vitally connected to him. In the language of the New Testament, we have to abide in Christ. So, One other thing we might say before we jump into the meat of these two commands, the command to forbear and forgive, we've already said, flows out of our identity and then this kind of character, virtue stuff that God is forming in us, but also that the commands to bear with and forgive assume, like notice this, these assume that there are going to be disagreements and discord and annoyance and frustration and burdens, and pain, and misunderstandings, and sins against one another, both minor and major. This, he wouldn't have to give us these commands if he wasn't assuming, like, hey, in this family, there will be fights. There will be pain. People are going to wrong one another. So we just have to acknowledge that. This is something that will happen, and this is because Jesus came to save sinners, didn't he? not perfect people. He's graciously patient with us as we stumble towards maturity, isn't he? So we can think of the church as something far more like a hospital or a recovery group than some sort of like exclusive club for people who all look the right way. It's assumed in this command. And maybe, maybe <laughs> the first thing we should make clear in response to this is, then is that Jesus is not caught off guard by these problems in his churches, is he? And neither should we be. We should expect that to be intimately connected to the family of God will certainly bring us 
<laughs> many times genuine reason to have to bear with our sisters and brothers and even to forgive our sisters and brothers and also to have to be born by them and forgiven by them. This isn't a surprise. It shouldn't be. And so, the heart of this message is where we turn now to these two commands, to bear with one another and to forgive one another. So we'll, we'll spend some time on each. First, forbear with one another. Bearing with one another is what Paul says. So what is this? What is he talking about here? Bearing with one another. There's a, a similar sounding command that we're going to talk about in a couple weeks to bear one another's burdens. And maybe that's where your mind first goes. Oh, I know what this is. This is like caring for the needs of the people or when challenges come. No, that's not, that's not this. Bearing with one another is more so, we could, we could define it as a commitment to patiently endure a relationship with someone despite challenges, to give time and attention when it isn't natural. It's, this is how we show love to people that we find difficult to love. So you could think of forbearance and forgiveness on a spectrum with forbearance being like, what do I do with people that I just don't really like to be around? Like, they haven't sinned against me. They haven't wronged me. They haven't done anything wrong. I just don't really want to be around them for reasons A, B, or C. Did you know the Apostle, Apostle Paul wrote about this? Like, just bad vibes between people. It's <laughs> my, my translation of the, the Greek here. Like, that's what he's talking about. They haven't done anything wrong, but you just, you just have to kind of bear them, bear their presence. And then you move down the, down the spectrum, and on the, the other side is forgiveness. Like, you have been genuinely wronged, and something has to be done about that. We'll talk about that next. But this is what you might call, like, the lesser, the lesser sort of drama. This is just a commitment to patiently endure someone challenging in your midst. This is what we do with minor difficulties in community. This is what you do with annoying people, draining people, frustrating people, needy people, demanding people, people who disappoint you. Though they weren't wrong, they just, they're just disappointing. And that can be painful in its own right. So I was actually surprised that this command was here. I mean, I've read this a bunch of times, but I didn't know that this is what Paul was talking about. Maybe you are too. It seems so modern and so mundane. N.T. Wright wrote that to forbear is to, quote, restrain your natural reaction towards odd or difficult people, to let them be themselves. Jerry Sitzer wrote that Jesus commands us to give each other the slack that he's given us. Forbearance requires that we give people room, room to be who they are, room to become who God intends, room to contribute to the church and the world despite their imperfections. And, you know, refusal to embrace this command, this command that he's given us, this way of being in the church, um, you know, it, it has all sorts of spiritual consequences. And I love this great quote from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. So if you don't know the Screwtape Letters, uh, it's, a, it's a book written from the perspective of a senior demon writing to like a junior demon about how to best you know, go about tormenting the person that he's, this demon is assigned to, how to tempt him away from the faith. Very fascinating book. So, so this is written in a, a demonic voice here, but uh, listen to this. He says, when he gets to his pew and he looks around him, he sees just what selection of his neighbors, that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You're going to want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ 
and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. That's God's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of these neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. He's putting his thumb on something that, like, annoyance in the church. You know, the church is one of the few, like, social gatherings that we just, we don't really choose. It's like family, once again. The same way you don't choose your family, you know, in, a, in our culture where there's sort of a buffet of church options, of course, if you get annoyed by enough people, you go, sweet, I'm going to go to Bridgetown, or I'm going to go to Amaga, or I'm going to go to whatever church is down the street. Of course, people do that. But rightly understood, like, commitment to a local body, you're like, I'm in this thing. And wherever, ultimately, wherever I go, if I'm going to actually get intimate and vulnerable and close, I will grate against someone else. And it's unlike any other social club where it's like, oh, I'll go when I want to. I won't when I don't. If it gets taxing or boring or I'm not just, you know, I'm just not feeling it this day, I'll, you know, I'll check out or whatever. The church is like a family. You're here with the family of God. People, whether you like them or don't, <laughs> whether you have a lot in common or you don't. And that can prove a, spirit, a deep spiritual challenge to us. And some people ultimately, you know, reject the whole thing because they just don't want to bear the cost of bearing with people that annoy them. So actual question to you right now. In this community, don't say your, don't answer me out loud. <laughs> Please. Well, maybe you should. Maybe that would be healthy for us. No, don't. Who annoys you? In this body, I want you to think about that. Who is someone in this body that you're like, I could do without them. <laughs> they haven't done anything wrong to me. There's no dra dramatic thing that needs to be resolved, but I could, you know, they're not here on a Sunday morning. Whew. I checked my community group re roster. They didn't sign up for it. Oh, all right. Now we can really have a good time. Who is this person who annoys you? Who do you struggle with? Not because they've wronged you, but simply because of their personality. And here's the deeper question. What might God be asking you to do in relationship to them this morning through this text? And I want to be very clear. I don't mean for them to be like your special project where you're going to condescend to show them love or whatever, you know, in some weird way. But I just mean like, have you considered that maybe those people are some of the very people that God has put in your life for the purpose of both serving and blessing them and being shaped by that relationship, if you can approach it in a healthy and loving way? You know, a key to this perhaps could be learning to see your brother or sister with the eyes of Christ. Do you fight? Do you fight to see the beauty and the dignity and the belovedness of each individual image bearer in this world. There is a real power in letting ourselves become re-enchanted with the reality that every person in this room has a story. Every person has a story that is endlessly complex and deep and beautiful and painful and it's full of meaning that God has imbued it with. Fight for those eyes, friends. I preach that to myself, that we'd all see each other not just as, as, you know, 
whatever, someone who's just irrelevant to my story, but someone with their own story, their own story of what God is doing in their life, someone that is of such immense worth that Jesus thought it worthy to die for them. Uh, in his book, Befriend, uh, Scott Sauls wrote, at its best, the church can provide support and solidarity that transcends all other loyalties while also demolishing divisions. Peter, a loud and intense man, and John, a gentle and contemplative man, become as inseparable brothers through their shared union with Jesus. Simon, an anti-government zealot, and Matthew, a government-employed tax collector, are transformed from enemies to friends by the same union. David and Jonathan, son of a shepherd and the son of a king, become the dearest of friends through a shared faith. So, what does it look like to love, to love the people in our community that we just don't want to spend time with? It means to forbear, to bear with one another, to put up with one another. And that might start as something, you know, begrudging and wholly obedient, but I trust that over time that can turn into something rich and beautiful and meaningful and transformative, both for you and potentially for that person. Because odds are that they probably know. They probably know. That's how you think of them and that's how you view them. We're, we're all fairly perceptive. We pick up on it. And Jesus wants more for us. He wants his community to be something that doesn't just say, well, when something's difficult, I move on, but we press in. This is a way in which we can become unlike the world and more like our Savior who forbears so much in us. And it's a basic necessity for forming a community of difference. So that's it for now. Forbear. Forbear one another. But there's also something uh, probably even more challenging, which is to forgive one another. So it's not just, you know, bearing with difficulty, but if anyone has a complaint against another, implying like, hey, if you have been wronged or you have wronged someone else, this of course goes both ways and every which way, when there are genuine complaints to be had, what do you do then? What do you do if it's not just like, ah, I just don't kind of get along, but like, no, there's wrongs that have been committed, sins that have been committed against one another. He says that he has another command for us, forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So forbearance is about how we lovingly respond to things short of sin. Forgiveness is about how we lovingly respond to being sinned against. So by way of definition, what's forgiveness? I've got a number. It's surprisingly hard to define, but from a few different uh, thinkers here. Doug Moo said, forgive translates a Greek verb, charizomai, that, trans that uh, conveys the idea of forgiving others as an act of grace. That root there is the same as the, the Greek term for grace. It's an act of grace freely offered and often not deserved. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, he said, first, to forgive is to name the wrongdoing and condemn it. And we're going to come back to this. This is super important. Forgiveness is not dismissal. But forgiveness involves naming a wrongdoing and condemning it. Like, that was actually genuinely wrong. Second, though, to forgive is to give wrongdoers the gift of not counting the wrongdoing against them. Lewis Smeets, who's written a couple books on forgiveness, he describes it 
as comprised of three stages you have to move through. First, you rediscover that person's humanity. Then you surrender your rights to get even. And then you revise your feelings towards that person. Tim Keller, his final book before he died, he added that forgiveness involves absorbing the debt oneself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back and also aiming for reconciliation. I want to be, we'll talk about this in a second too. That doesn't mean reconciliation is always possible, but at least the heart is to aim for it. And one other important thing I, I like from Lewis Meads, he says, forgiveness does not release offenders from the need to take personal responsibility for the sins committed. Sometimes we twist those things too. Forgiveness does not absolve offenders from guilt. Only God has the power to absolve. Only he can decide the fate of every person's soul. Forgiveness does not deliver the offender from the consequences of sinful actions. And so the concept, we have to say, okay, yes, beautiful, but I, I imagine many of us in this room, we're just, hands want to go up. Like, oh, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Because, and for good reason, because the concept of forgiveness can be and has been hideously abused in churches. You don't have to look far. So we should take a moment to state clearly what forgiveness is not. And I'm just, I'm going to lift these, we'll, we'll move through, through these briefly. I'm just going to lift these wholesale from a wonderful sermon I remember um, Tim Mackey giving in this building years ago uh, from Matthew 18 uh, about forgiveness. And I, I thought about kind of reworking these categories. I thought, ah, he said it better than I'm going to come up with. So let's just use that. So here we go. Forgiveness is not, first of all, ignoring or forgetting. To forgive is not to be like, ah, I'm not going to worry about that thing. It's probably not that big of a deal. Or let's just put it out of mind it's as if it didn't happen. That's crucial. Forgiveness always involves the actual acknowledgement of a real wrong that's been done. Second, forgiveness is not condoning or excusing because maybe, you know, you can go, oh, I, you know, that was wrong, but, you know, it it's actually wasn't that bad. Or actually, you know, it's all, it's all, how many do we say it's all good? It's like, what do you mean it's all good? Something like something bad happened. It's not all good. It's not ex making excuses. Well, you know, if you knew the context, you'd know why they did that. And actually, that's true. You might know why. Good adage is all behavior does make sense in context. It doesn't excuse it, though. It doesn't mean that it's just magically okay because there's a context that enabled that person to do that thing. Forgiveness is not excusing or condoning. This one's crucial. Forgiveness is not tolerating or allowing further abuse to happen. Abusers often utilize the concept of forgiveness to continue to have purchase, to continue their abuse. If you really forgive me, you just let me right back into the same predicament where I can continue to enact this thing. That's not forgiveness. It does not tolerate or allow further abuse. There is nothing contradictory with forgiveness and drawing strict boundaries that will be maintained sometimes for the rest of your life. You can forgive and maintain safe and healthy boundaries. You must. Along those lines, forgiveness is not reconciliation or restoration. I want to I say this. I do think reconciliation is the goal. I think that's what we should long for. But reconciliation takes two people humbly willing to like own their, their piece of it, especially the perpetrator. And they have to, like reconciliation can oftentimes, depending on how severe what we're talking about is, it can require a long time of proving trustworthiness. 
before anything like the kind of relationship that was had before could be reinstated. Reconciliation is a goal, but it takes two. Forgiveness actually only takes yourself. It only takes you to forgive. It, takes, it can take a lot of com- complex work between two people for reconciliation. So, and then to clarify, a fifth is forgiveness is not necessarily returning back to the way things were before. It doesn't require that the relationship looks exactly like it was before the wrongdoing took place. And one last one. Forgiveness is not allowing the offender to escape consequences. You can genuinely forgive someone and also see that it is right that real consequences happen for what they, what they did. So, some, gosh, we could go for so long about all these things. And like, well, what about this? What about this? When does this apply? When doesn't this apply? Of course, for now, we just, we let this be an introduction. And I'll say this. What forgiveness looks like in its healthiest form in a given situation is sometimes unclear. This is another reason why community is actually so important. We need wise, Christ-seeking people who know us, who know the situation, maybe who know the other person, to help us do it safely and wisely and healthily. I just want to say this. If you are in an especially complex, especially painful or abusive situation, please don't try to work through that alone. Please don't try to work through that alone. We need people to lovingly help us navigate and untangle all the threads that get knotted up in these situations. So, I would, I would, I'm hesitant to do this because I I don't want to be perceived as a a culture warrior or something like that. but I do think it's, it's timely to talk about forgiveness's relationship to what is sometimes colloquial called, colloquially called cancel culture. And, you know, there's a lot of talking heads booming about, do we have a, a so-called cancel culture or not right now? Um, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that we do in the modern West. And I would say a couple of things. What cancel culture gets right is that it's, there's a yearning, a deep yearning for, that I think is good, God-honoring for justice and accountability when wrongdoing has been committed. A cry for justice and accountability is a cry near to the heart of God. And sometimes, like, the things that, you know, the things that people get canceled for are, you know, the moral content intent of the so-called cancellation or deplatforming or whatever you want to call it is right and good. It's like, yes. This is the right thing that must be held accountable. But I think what it gets wrong in its most unhealthy instances is that there's, you know, it doesn't carry with it a doctrine like Christianity has of original sin, pervasive sin, the common sinfulness of all humanity, which can lead to no humility. It can quickly become like, here's a class of people who are the wrong people, the bad people, the ones who do the bad things. And we over here are the morally pure, morally upright, you know, non-condemnable people. And when there's no humility, these things can get really ugly. There's oftentimes no clarity on what is genuinely moral many times. Someone could get canceled for something that in the eyes of God is fair and reasonable and, you know, should be within the realm of public discourse and so on and so forth. But maybe more than any of it, it often seems that there's no mechanism for forgiveness. There's no mechanism for someone to atone for their sins. 
in the culture's eyes. There's no mechanism for restoration, for reconciliation, for healing, for someone to be welcomed back into community. Maybe a simpler way to put that is there's no mechanism for love often. There's often a gleeful celebration of people's fall. Someone powerful falls, you know, and I want to be very clear again, yes, accountability and justice, of course. I think that goes without saying. But when we just have a gleeful celebration, a glorying in anyone's, like, failure and exclusion, you know, from polite society, uh, and sometimes that's the right thing that needs to happen, but when we, when we glory in that, I think that reveals something corrosive inside the human heart. It seems that America has been rapidly sliding into an honor-shame culture that really has no place for grace, forgiveness, or restoration, even in acknowledging like restoration is complex and takes time and complicated and all the things I just said. You don't always get to be back at the right, same seat at the table depending on what you do. I say all that as a given. But nonetheless, grace, forgiveness, and restoration is what the people of the church are meant to be about. It's what the church is meant to be about. I just think that's interesting to ponder. Next time there's a, a, big, uh, a big public cancellation to think through, like, what, is, what does justice and mercy look like in this situation? Forgiveness also has some other unique challenges. I, for one, often think it's harder to ask for forgiveness, like to have the humility and, and the confession that asking for forgiveness requires than to give it. I find it personally a little bit easier if someone wrongs me and comes to ask me for forgiveness. I'm usually, I think I do a decent job of forgiving, but I have a hard time like coming to someone and saying like, I wronged you. Like, what I did to you was wrong. Will you forgive me? And I would just ask, like, when, for all of, when's the last time you asked someone this question? Will you forgive me? Has it been months? Has it been years? Has it been decades? Okay, now when's the last time you did something bad to someone? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? But implicit in this, the forgiving... Being a forgiving community means we are the kind of people who are humble enough to say, I need forgiveness from my brothers and sisters, probably far often than I'm aware of. We need to learn to flex this muscle. Another thing to note is that forgiveness is, is scary because it's often a long process that you have to return to and choose again and again and again. We all want kind of the emotional reality of forgiveness to be a one and done thing. Like, great, I forgave the person. You know, I kind of get to move on. That's just not how trauma works. And even if we're not, you know, in the category of trauma with these things, it's not how just emotional difficulty works. Forgiveness is a process. New layers can surface again and again and again, and you think you're done with it, and then some new aspect comes up, and you have to keep coming back over a long period of time, and it's exhausting. We would all prefer for it to just be a nice one-time event, and it almost never is. And that makes many of us just want to kind of give up on the process altogether because it's hard. It's hard. It's taxing. Maybe one other thing to say is that uh, I'll, I'll just quote Jerry Sitzer here. He says, however costly forgiveness is, it does not compare with the cost of unforgiveness. 
Unforgiveness condemns us to live forever in the dungeon of the past. The memory serves only to remind us of what went wrong of the hurt we received. We caress that painful memory. We find a strange happiness in thinking about it, and finally it poisons us. Unforgiveness leads to wrath, which makes us quick to accuse and ready to explode the moment we're crossed. Wrath makes us quick to punish. Wrangling engenders quarrelsomeness. Slander is the crude attempt to turn other people against the offender. Malice makes us wish evil on another person. Unforgiveness may get its way. It may cause hurt, inflict punishment, heap blame. Yet the greatest victim is the unforgiving self. And I think that's, those are wise words. You could read uh, Jesus in the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you know, go look up that, that parable if you haven't read it recently. And Jesus warns in the harshest terms against the kind of bitterness that gets produced by unforgiveness. So, forgive. It is countercultural. It is countercultural to admit your sin, to admit your wrong, not only against God, but against your neighbors. It is countercultural to seek the forgiveness of others, and it is countercultural to try to forgive people who have sinned against you. Everything that we're taught and told and has modeled for us in pop culture says just cut and run, cut these people out of your life. They don't deserve your time, they don't deserve your energy, they don't deserve your forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit would say, not here. Not here, not in this family that I'm building. And at the, at the risk of repeating myself, of course, of course, please hear me again. That doesn't mean it's simple. And that doesn't mean hard and strong barriers don't have to be drawn sometimes. That doesn't mean that we enable things to continue. Please hear that. Please hear that. But it does mean that we are called to forgive with wisdom, with wisdom, often discerned in community and prayerfully, but to forgive. And the section concludes, or this verse concludes with this incredibly enriching phrase here, forgiving each other. Here we go. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is, this is the result of gospel generosity that we have been shown. Our forgiveness, if we actually want to have, to have any shot at becoming this kind of counterculturally forgiving people, it has to be first enabled by Jesus' example. We see Jesus, the one, the perfect one who has never wronged a soul, who lived in perfect obedience to the Father, who lived the life we could not live, who was sinned against repeatedly, who even on his way to the cross as the nails are being driven in, cries out to his Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus in our own broken and haphazard and windy way, we are working to be, have that sort of heart towards those who wrong us. It's not just his example that we see in him forgiving us, it's, it's his power. Jesus has given us of his spirit. He's indwelt us. He's given us a supernatural reservoir of strength that enables us to make choices that we would not make in our own flesh. He's empowered us to forgive as he has forgiven. If we'll, if we'll seize that power, if we'll grab it, if we'll maintain connection to him. 
The gospel also enables our forgiveness just by our humble recognition of our own ability. The gospel of grace is that we could not earn our way to God's favor. We are sinners in need of outside salvation to be gifted to us. And at its best, that reminds us of our, our humility, our humility. And being humble, again, Paul's already stated, being humble is the precondition for learning to forgive other people, to not have such a high view of yourself that impedes the ability to forgive others. But more than that, the gospel reminds us of, it gives us, we are enabled by a graceful recognition of others' inability. So if you, know the, if you trust the gospel, you know that, man, these people who have wronged me, they are so weak. <laughs> they too, like, make choices that they hate. They don't do the things they want to do or ought to do. They are unable. And if I am in that boat too and I have been shown mercy, as we mature in Christ, we long for that mercy for them as well. So the gospel is what makes this story possible. It enables us, it empowers us, gives us recognition of our own faults and also the glorious forgiveness we've received and also our neighbor's faults and the glorious forgiveness that Jesus wants for them too and has purchased for them. So I do think one way to grow in our ability to forgive is to just continue again and again and again to come back to the good news of Jesus. And one of the centerpieces of that good news is the forgiveness of sins that he has purchased for us. So, to conclude, verse 14. It's just like we said. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Just a great little, you know, thing. A great little reminder of what we've been saying. Love expressed in these ways is what we're after. So ironically, one of the ways we will know, Door of Hope Northeast, that we are growing in love as a community is when we are seeing more and more forbearance and more and more forgiveness in our lives and the lives of those around us. Because it's evidence that we are actually becoming close enough to annoy one another, to burden one another, and even, yes, to hurt one another. And yet love is proving victorious over that. Love is, love is even greater. To live in community is to open yourself up to these things, and that's scary, and there will be pains involved. But Jesus says it's worth it. Jesus says it's worth it. So may we put on love, expressed in these ways, helping and supporting one another as we strive to truly become the body of Christ. Amen?